Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and I'm very excited to be on the line again today with another good friend and someone who I highly respect in our industry, Mr. Michael Payne, calling him from in Switzerland today. Hi, Michael. Marcus, great to be with you and uh, all of your listeners on your Sports Marketing Podcast. Thank you, thank you. And and I we always do, uh, because we always assume not everyone might know you or know us, so um, let me give you a little quick introduction to the amazing career Michael's had over the last 40 years. So um, you started off as a freestyle skier um, in, the, in the late 70s. I think that on its own is already quite unique, being British, um, but we'll get to that maybe later. Um, you cut your teeth then at some of the early companies in our industry, West Nelly and ISL in the, in the 80s, um, working, I believe, on the World Cup as well as the Olympics. Um, clearly, uh, I would call it your claim to fame is your 16 years at the IOC as the director of marketing and broadcast, working there uh, during the era of uh, Mr. Summerunch in 1988 to 2004. Um, I think right after, you also uh, were a special advisor to Bernie Ecclestone for many years, um, as well as WPP to uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, I'm assuming. Um, and now, for the last 15 years, you've been chairman of your own company, Paint Sports Media Strategies, uh, and advising multiple groups, which we'll get to later as well. Um, Advertising Age calls you one of the world's mo- foremost marketeers. And others call you the father of the Olympic branding. I think all amazing titles, of course. You have a great book out called The Olympic Turnaround, which sold a million copies in 15 languages around the world. And maybe just top it off and throw another huge number out there is uh, you've been involved directly at $25 billion worth of deals in our industry. So I I want to clap here, (laughs) but uh, I want to just hand it over to you now um, to come in here and, uh, and as we always do here, do a bit of a warm-up. Tell us a bit about how you got in the industry. You know, West Nelly and Isel are, are names for anyone who's long enough around the industry would know, but maybe not for all our you know, newer listeners. Tell us a bit of how that industry started in the wild west of sports marketing in those days. Um, well, I think you appropriately term it the wild west. Um, thanks for your sort of very kind uh, and gracious introduction. But uh, as you said, I started out actually in the uh, as a competitor, uh, um, not a very successful competitor. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was um, in the freestyle ski circuit or hot dogging back then in the seventies, right. uh, uh, and was on the professional circuit in order to. Uh, you know, pay for the next flight ticket or the next meal, uh, it had to go and find sponsors. And I was a lot better, shall we say, at finding sponsors than winning any of the competitions. Uh, I decided that maybe I should make a career change. And I started representing some of the skiers and uh, doing some of the shows and uh, working with some of the events and realized that, this was the very beginning of the sports marketing industry. Mm. And if I wasn't going to sort of succeed in collecting gold medals uh, competing, uh, why didn't I go back of house? Um, and I looked around as to what were the leading agencies. Uh, and there were effectively two, uh, Mark McCormack's IMG, that focused on the athlete endorsement. Yeah. Uh, and a company called West Nally, 
set up by a uh, leading TV commentator, Peter West, and a young ER entrepreneur, Patrick Nally. And they were focused on the event marketing side. And I was, that was the first opportunity I was able to get to um, uh, go into the industry. And at the very um, sort of ground level, uh, learn the, 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 the rudiments of event marketing. Mm. Uh, from the early days of test match cricket to the tobacco sponsorship with Benson Hedges and their series of events, through also to the, the international stage, uh, putting together the first ever World Athletics Championships in Helsinki. Wow. And Patrick Nally and, and the team were also creating the very uh, foundations of sports marketing uh, in terms of packaging of rights, uh, exclusivity of category. And for many uh, you know, people in the industry, West Nally in the 70s was really like a, a university, yep. sort of a master's course in sports marketing. Uh, so I spent five years there. Which exactly uh, were your area you were involved in? Was it already in sales or what was it sort of you're doing everything, uh, you know, like you are in small agencies? So how, how did, what was exactly your role? I was doing everything. Um, eventually leading the sort of athletics division mm-hmm. uh, from starting the marathon craze, launching the London Marathon with Chris Brasher, oh, wow. uh, then series of marathons across uh, Europe. Uh, right through to um, doing the first ever timing contracts for the IAAF with Seiko, uh, mm-hmm. a contract that or a partnership that I'm pleased to say 40 years later is still running. Um, and West Nally was involved in you know, the other great events. They created the first ever Rugby World Cup. Uh, they created the uh, or reinvigorated the Davis Cup of Tennis. Uh, and pioneered a, a new concept called Inter Soccer 4, which was the packaging of all of UEFA's soccer rights and FIFA's soccer rights. And so everybody was being um, you know, pulled into these different projects, and it was uh, an incredible uh, learning curve. Um, unfortunately, there was a split between the partners, um, between Patrick Nally and uh, the the principal, if you want, sports political partner who was Horst Dazzler, uh, the owner of Adidas. And that split led to the creation of a new agency called ISL. Uh, And I was the very first executive to go over from West Nally to ISL. I think joining ISL uh, around about executive number five, as Dazzler had staffed it with uh, uh, a couple of his um, key lieutenants from Adidas. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, so and that was obviously your first taste of, I guess, Olympics as well, right? Because I believe you were the Olympic project director uh, at ISL. Yeah, I was. As you said, I was hired to be the the project director uh, at the time. Uh, the IOC had no marketing department. And so I was so de facto um, from '83 uh, the IOC's uh, marketing director, uh, but with the IOC having outsourced all the marketing to ISL. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, the IOC back then was a uh, 
um, <laughs> very small organization. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they had more than 30 people. You know, when you look at the setup today of over a thousand, it's it's remarkable how it's transformed. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily viewed as um, potentially a great career move because you have to remember that uh, back in the early 80s, the Olympics were bankrupt. Uh, there was nobody wanting to host the Olympic Games. Um, sort of an anecdote that I wrote up in my book that not many people were aware of, but for the 1984 Olympics, there were only two candidates. One was Tehran, and they had, as they say, a slight management change in the leadership of the country, and that put pay to, uh, with the Islamic Revolution, that put pay to any attempt of Tehran hosting the Games. Yep. And Los Angeles, and they were looking back at the um, negative legacy of Montreal, where the Olympics had effectively bankrupted the city mm. because of all the capital expenditure. And so the good uh, citizens of Los Angeles said, yeah, no, we love the Olympics, but uh, we don't want there to be any public money used. Let's have a vote. And more than 90% of the people said no. Oh, wow. I don't know. Uh, and as, as a result, you know, this was very much the end of the road. And a lot of the media commentators at the time were writing the sort of obituary of the Olympics saying, well, it had been wonderful whilst it lasted, mm. uh, but it's become too political, too big. Too and if by some chance you could persuade a country to stage the games, you know, they'd spend five, six years preparing and then, you know, nobody would turn up because you were caught in the Cold War superpowers between yeah. the, the Americans and the Soviet Union. So the, the, the outlook, you know, of the Olympics surviving um, was not great. Mm. And sort of packing up uh, home, leaving England, moving to Switzerland to take on this job to create a marketing business strategy for the Olympics. Um, very exciting, but there were not a lot of um, uh, supporters saying, yeah, you'll have no trouble pulling that off. <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine. And, and absolutely. I mean, anyone who knows a bit about the Olympics in the 80s, 84 and 88, of course, um, the early ones there, uh, it, there was a, it was, as you rightly said, highly political and complicated. Um, but, you know, maybe we'll, as we continue with this, with our discussion here, what do you think really then happened? You know, how does it slowly started to change uh, and, of course, became what it is now today? What, what was sort of in the, in the early days there? Now, you know, we can all point to many things, but what was it really what made that difference, well, you know, from your point of view? Um, for me, leadership. Uh, and leadership encapsulated in one individual, um, Juan Antonio Samaranch, mm -hmm. who was the new IOC president uh, elected in 1980. But initially, even he wasn't very optimistic because uh, he came to the IOC headquarters. He'd been an IOC member for many years, but that's a very sort of hands-off volunteer position. And so for the first time, he had a chance to look at the uh, the books and he decided that the accounts were in such terrible shape 
that uh, how could he resign the IOC presidency? Um, Fortunately, he didn't and uh, knuckled down and proceeded to lead the IOC, you know, back from the cliff of uh, oblivion. Um, A combination that was always, you know, the timing was good because in the early 80s, you had the beginnings of the media industry understanding the power of sport. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you started to create a bidding contest between different TV channels. So that started to um, put some money in the in the coffers Mm -hmm. uh, challenge to create a second pillar of revenue uh, which we eventually succeeded in doing with the top program so that provided broader financial stability Mm -hmm. and then uh, a program to in some ways depoliticize the olympics uh, by Sam Ranch having a major outreach program to the political leaders around the world uh, in order that they understood what the Olympics meant and wouldn't continue to sort of scream boycott every time they had a disagreement with the host country. Right. Um, now, all of that took you know, more than a, a decade to sort of pull off, and it probably wasn't until... Barcelona 92 mm. that it was generally accepted that the Olympics were back and in great health. That was my first Olympic I've ever attended actually so uh, you were obviously deep into the uh, into the action already and I was a student <laughs> but it was an amazing event I remember that very well. Um, we, you touched on the on the on the top four program. I, mean, I know you are obviously one of the creators and founders of it. Um, talk us a bit more through how it came about. Um, what was the thinking behind it? Um, you know, and how you got the first sponsors on board. Um, you know, maybe just a couple of examples there. Um, I suppose the the top program. Um, came about initially in discussions between Horst Dazzler and Samaranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dazzler was a close friend of Samaranch, and Samaranch said, look, I need to build and broaden the, the marketing uh, opportunities here. Uh, we'd seen what Los Angeles with Peter Uberoff had succeeded in doing yeah. of for the first time offering exclusivity uh, to a limited number of companies. Um, I mean, there'd always been sponsorship uh, of the Olympics. Um, you know, the local organizing committees had always reached out to right. different companies to either get their technology, their products, um, you know, all financial support. Right. Uh, Montreal had, I think, something like 650 different partnerships but they were not bringing much money. Right. So Uberoth looked at this and said, right, you know, this model is not going to work. How do I uh, create a model? And in that case, it was rarity, exclusivity. Um, but his program in 84 still had a lot of flaws. Um, Dazzler with Patrick Nally had been very involved in creating the FIFA model. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
of a limited number of high-profile companies and said, why don't we do the same with the Olympics? Now, that um, on paper sounded, yeah, great. Mm. But there were two um, small problems that everybody had forgotten about. Uh, one, that the Olympics didn't have any form of advertising in the venues. Mm. And all form of sponsorship at the time was defined by having your name on the side of the venue or on the athlete. And the IOC wasn't prepared to, at least initially, break down that barrier. Mm. What the IOC did have was an incredibly valuable Mark the five rings, possibly yes. the most recognized symbol in the world, a symbol that had tremendous value proposition. And the idea of licensing that to companies for their marketing programs um, it was an interesting proposition. Mm-hmm. But the IOC had no ownership over the five rings in that in previous decades, the responsibility to manage the five rings was delegated to each national Olympic committee. And a few of them were generating reasonable sums of local sponsorship. And the last thing they wanted to do was having the IOC come in and uh, interfere with their sandbox. Mm. So we actually had to, first of all, before we could actually go and sell anything to the sponsors, had to go and negotiate with what then was 160 different National Olympic Committees and countries. Yep, I've um, heard that before. And, you know, for many of them, they had no marketing, so it was fine. Uh, but care. for the top 20 or 30, um, this was a major challenge. Yeah. And again, you have to go back in the time of the Cold War. I recall one uh, you know, negotiation one time with the American Olympic Committee. And it wasn't just one round of negotiations. It might have been 50 rounds of negotiations. <laughs> uh, but in one of those rounds was with the vice president of the United States Olympic Committee. And he said, so explain this top program to me again. You're going to go and sell to international companies, he said, you know, like Coca-Cola or Kodak. He said, yeah, that's, that's the plan. You're going to go and sell to American companies, Coca-Cola and Kodak. And I said, well, you know, they may be American headquartered, but these are global companies. And then you're going to go and take the money and distribute it around the world to all the countries. And he said, yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> And the guy, the vice president, looked at me and said, do you think I'm crazy? (laughs) I'm going to go and let you take American money and give it to the communists so they can steal our gold medals. Wow. Welcome to the Cold War. Mm. Um, And so we spent the better part of three years reaching out to all of the countries and most people you know said well this is clearly the right way to go the only way to go 
but you'll never pull it off. You will never get all the countries to agree to a single marketing program. Mm. And, you know, to be fair, no company or political organization had ever achieved such a thing. Um, But, you know, between, uh, you know, Dazzler's vision and financing, uh, between, you know, one or two very uh, focused and and dogged executives uh, at ISL, um, we were able to pull that off. Uh, In parallel, looking at the, you know, corporate industry, Coca-Cola, who had been a sponsor one way or the other of the games over the years, said, no, no, they would back this program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they became the first top sponsor, but they weren't fully convinced that we would succeed. So they continued to run bilateral negotiations with each of the two organizing committees, Calgary and Seoul 88. we went to other companies. I remember going to IBM, and um, IBM said, "What do you mean putting the Olympic rings on uh, on the computer and everything else? Don't be so stupid. Not interested." Hmm. We went to American Express, who'd been a sponsor in uh, Los Angeles, and they said. We don't want a worldwide program. We just want to have the top 15 countries. I mean, and by the way, there's nobody else who would ever take this category. So once you've realized that your worldwide program won't work, come back to us. Right. Here comes Visa. A story we can get <laughs> on to a little bit later. That's right. Um, and so we, we had Coca-Cola and Kodak. I mean, Kodak had jumped on board to get the rights back after the battle with Fuji right. in uh, Los Angeles. And that was it. And for two years, we had no more partners. Um, What were the rough numbers at that time, just so to give a sense of uh, now the scale? What was it roughly they're paying for, let's say, four-year cycle? Or um, it was an awful lot of money at the time. Um, Compared today, maybe a bit of a sort of (laughs) embarrassment. I think the big deals then were going at around fifteen, one five million dollars for four years. Right, well, that's, um, like you said, that's a lot of still a lot of money, and you know, at those the, days. the most recent the most recent top deals that I have driven just to compare mm. would be over five hundred million dollars for one cycle. Yes. Wow. Uh, so times you know times changed, times evolved. Um, but it wasn't until we bought Visa and 3M into the Olympic program that we really got the momentum that people felt, no, this was now, uh, there was something there that was working. Mm. And what was most interesting about Visa and 3M was they had no... Uh, history of sports marketing Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they approached this with a completely fresh perspective Um, rather than being in the promotions department and saying oh yeah we got a sports event okay uh, go and stick the name on the uh, the venue go and get a couple of tickets Mm. Uh, and if you were lucky do an ad hoc promotion Um, 
they came at this with the view of we want to transform the brand image of our company and we think the Olympics could be a very good vehicle to achieve that and as a result they uh, integrated the Olympics into everything they did and it became the platform to transform the company. In Visa's case, it was to take on American Express. In 3M's case, it was to showcase innovation and create a vehicle that could unite 11 disparate divisions from you know, post-it notes to medical care. Uh, and when the industry began to see the results from those two uh, marketing programs, they said, no, this is different. Uh, and that, you know, basically then gave us the runway going forward to have a completely different discussion and dialogue with the industry. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I always use I use Samsung another great example. I think how who they became, um, and I always say on the back of the Olympics as well, right? It was a Korean, you know, electronics company, nowhere near the Sony's and the big Japanese at that time. Uh, you know, not, not known for you know top quality or, or anything of that matter. Um, and I think with that Olympic program, just just went you know as we all know, now become is one of the biggest brands on the planet. So uh, I think the Olympics have shown that um, companies who are coming in and doing it in the right way are are just having huge you know it provides a massive platform for them. You got another interesting example. I know what maybe let's touch on maybe one of the more recent ones where, you, as you mentioned earlier, you've been involved in uh, with Alibaba uh, again, another massive company, but you know more Chinese focus, obviously, right? Uh, you know most people would know them really from China. Um, how are they looking to use the Olympics globally, and, and what's their big plan uh, behind it? Um, well, I mean, you're right that with the right with the correct vision and strategy, the games can be. Well, the Olympic brand can be transformative, and it, it was for Samsung. I mean, who was a um, didn't even break into the top 100 of global brands, and they used the Olympics and subsequently the broader sports platform to develop their global profile and position. Absolutely. And within three four years, they were in the top 15 global brands. Yep. Um, Alibaba. Um, is rolling out its sort of global footprint beyond China very much on the back of the Olympics. Um, but they are critically involved in the overall delivery operation of the games in ways that probably people will only begin to understand when they see Tokyo 2020. Um, obviously, one part of Alibaba's partnership revolves around the cloud uh, and the whole future of cloud technology. Uh, they're working with the IOC's broadcast operations, OBS, to create the Olympic cloud. And on the second tier broadcast platforms, you know, from the mobile and digital, the whole broadcast distribution will, for the first time in Tokyo, be done through the cloud. Wow. In a way that the IOC is even saying that by 2028, there might no longer be the need to have an international broadcast center because the cloud will take over the whole uh, distribution engagement uh, of the signals back to the main broadcasters. So that's you know one 
transformative example um, of what Alibaba is doing. Um, as a company, they're also at the, the forefront of data digital management and increasingly becoming the, the backbone to the IOC's whole uh, data digital uh, vision, uh, looking at everything from the selling of tickets uh, and how that's transformed into a digital spectator journey yep. uh, to how you would eventually be creating engagement one-on-one with the billion-plus Olympic fans around the world. Um, so it has also come a long way since uh, my very first $15 million top sponsorship deals in the 80s. Love it. Great story. Um, I'm going to try to move us along here since we got so many amazing other things I wanted to touch on a little bit. Um, and, and one was, uh, you know, it, it, I've always, you know, and I don't know the, the background of it really, is where is this, the concept of that there is no branding on the field of play? Um, is this, you know, just historically and then and it just continued through and, and everyone stuck through it? Or, I mean, every other major sporting event on the planet, even Wimbledon, as conservative as they are, has branding, you know, on, on the field of play. Um, where does that come from? Um, I think through the I. The starting point would be through the IOC's sort of conservatism. Um, you know, if you go back to the, the, the 50s, 60s, you know, there was no advertising in nearly all sports venues. And then slowly over time, uh, you know, the clubs or the leagues introduced advertising into the venue. Yeah. Um, sort of a, a little uh, side anecdote was that there was advertising actually in the Olympic Games in uh, in what it was Paris twenty uh, four. If you go back and look at the Chariots of Fire film and the okay. records at the time, you would actually see advertising banners along the hundred meter straight. All right. uh, but we'll pass on from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the IOC, if you want, a bit like Wimbledon, being very conservative, had always said, no, no, we we don't want to be too commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, then once the top program was launched, you know, and everybody was saying, oh, it's now, you know, commercial, when will there be advertising in the venue? Right. Uh, um, you know, it's only just a matter of time. And Sam Ranch used to push me uh, mm-hmm. because he was just scared we didn't have enough revenue. And that uh, one day we would have to introduce advertising into the venue uh, in order to sustain the um, the financial model. Right. Uh, and I always resisted. I mean, I actually, in the end, made it a resignation issue because wow. we had begun to understand the true power of the Olympic brand. And everybody would say, well, there's always advertising in the venue. Mm. I said, no, there isn't. <laughs> yes, there is. You go back and forth, and you say, "Right, I'll have a bet," and I won many good bottles of wine over this, right. because people were convinced there is advertising in the venue because there's advertising in all sports venues, and then you would sit them down in front of the TV screen and look at a video clip of the Olympics, and you go, "See, there's no advertising. It's different," mm. and everybody go, "My God, it is different." Whenever I was watching the Olympic Games, it always I knew it was different. I knew it was special, but I never put my finger on it. Why? 
And the more we got into the effective brand management of the Olympics as to what makes the Olympics special, different, unique from all of the other events, we began to appreciate the value of certain symbolism of the fact you had, you know, the, the only backdrop the runners were going against was the Olympic rings. Um, and Sam Ranch never believed me. Mm. And I remember one day at a, at a big conference and we had the chief marketing officer of, um, Coca-Cola there. And uh, Sam Ranch tried to basically, what, what's the word, end run me by asking <laughs> or getting the director general to ask uh, the Coca-Cola boss. So tell me, how much more money would you pay if there was advertising in the right. venues at the Olympics? Right. And what did he say? And at which stage I thought, Christ, have we got a problem on our hands. But the chief marketing officer of Coke stood up and said, <clears throat> we would withdraw. Wow. Because you would destroy the one thing that's making the Olympics unique and special. Uh, so even he said, and we don't need branding in the venue. It's, it's the value proposition. And it, you must not touch that. Um, so that finally put to bed any attempt to introduce uh, advertising, you know, into the venues. And I, I hope it will always stay like that. Yeah. Well, definitely sounds like we can thank you for that, for the nice, clean venues uh, which is being delivered there. But um, I have to admit, I have never heard it exactly in that sort of form. Now, going along the lines, before we move on to uh, sort of the next uh, block of topics here, um, now there's obviously a big change to Rule 40. Uh, our friends in Germany um, started it, I believe, and um, is now giving the athletes, I guess for the first time, a little more flexibility to use, you know, be, bring their sponsors in again, not necessarily on the, in, in the TV camera world uh, or space, but at least uh, they're allowed to, you know, congratulate them and, and, and create some other opportunities around their success. Um, how do you see that? And, and uh, you know, just your thoughts on that. I, I think the media is making it into a much, much bigger issue than it really is. Um, in the evolving nature of social media and everything, it just was no longer feasible to turn around to an athlete who has had his local sponsor for several years mm. and telling him he's got to change his website, he's got to clean it all up, he's got to be completely neutral, any advertising that had been appearing with his name in it has got to be withdrawn for the month of the games. Uh, that just wasn't viable Um, so the new ruling is permitting that but what it's not permitting is suddenly for advertisers to come up with new Olympic themed campaigns to suddenly come out and sign up new athletes there on the spot or whatever it really is just designed that those athletes who have got or have had long-standing sponsors that they can at least, you know, continue to acknowledge their support because the support is nothing to do with the Olympics. It's been about their ongoing career. And if they are successful, to be able to say, thank you for supporting me. But the advertisers are not allowed to suddenly go off and start creating, you know, new, you know, TV commercials and spots that's all tied into the Olympics. So I think, you know, the Olympic sponsors are – 
appropriately protected. And, you know, the Olympics, again, like any, unlike any other event, because if you're a sponsor, you're a sponsor of the event and of the team. And in the case of top, all 205 Olympic teams. Correct. If you're a sponsor of the World Cup and soccer, you're a sponsor of the event, so Coke can have the World Cup, but they can get into a nice little Star Wars race with Pepsi Cola trying to sign up one or other of the soccer teams. Yeah, or athletes, correct. I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Michael Payne. Stay tuned for part two, where we will be going into ambush marketing and how the IOC deals with it. We will cover the 1999 Salt Lake City major crisis. And of course, we'll look into the future of the IOC and the Olympic movement in the next decade. Stay tuned for part two. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.